1: There's been tremendous advancement in autonomous vehicle technology in in the last few years, but how close are we to actually having mass-produced driverless vehicles on our roads? That's a question that our next guest might be able to answer, and I believe he believes it will be sooner rather than later. Lawrence Burns is a former corporate vice president of research, development, and planning for General Motors. He supervised and encouraged GM's development of robotic driving technology, and he believes that this technology is closer than you might think. He discusses its growth in his new book, Autonomy, the quest to build the driverless car and, he, and how it will reshape the world. And uh, Larry joins us on the show right now to discuss the book. Larry, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time me as well. Thank you. I I mentioned your background in this a little bit, and and from what I read, you were involved in in kind of one of the first funded projects for DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, looking at autonomous vehicles and how they could play out a few years ago, correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. Um, After uh, 9-11, DARPA was very interested in developing a, a vehicle that the military could use to keep soldiers out of harm's way. Uh, You'll recall when the Afghanistan and Iraq War started, we had tragedies with our soldiers with these improvised explosive devices. So one idea was create a robotic car that could do missions in city settings and not have to have personnel in them. So they created a competition. The first races were across the desert out uh, out west. And then finally, they did what was called the DARPA Urban Challenge in 2007, and 85 teams entered that race. It was a $2 million first prize, and I was at General Motors at that time, and we sponsored Carnegie Mellon University. Volkswagen sponsored Stanford, and the other teams competed, and our team was fortunate enough to win, but the real winner was the technology. We really, I think, hit a critical proof-of-concept point at that moment that maybe we really could create cars that could drive themselves. And
1: and I think that's an important point to touch on for a second because I think the belief of a lot of people is that realistically this is a technology, this is a mindset in terms of developing it that's really been only the last five years or so. This has been something that has been in the works for quite some time. Oh,
0: absolutely. And in fact— If you really go back in history, there were many visionaries in the 1970s and 80s who thought we could have cars drive themselves by putting magnets in the road and the car would follow these magnets. The problem with that is it required a lot of uh, investment in the roads. Um, Along came GPS, and Moore's law continued to play out so we had greater computing capacity and better communications technology. And lo and behold, we began to envision that you could do this just by making the car really smart and having it connected via GPS to satellites and big databases. And so that made the task really viable uh, from our perspective. began thinking about that around 2000, and then DARPA did their challenges um, initially in 2004. So, yeah, we've been working this pretty hard for, you know, 20-some years.
1: So from the technology side, how close do you think we are to, to seeing autonomous vehicles on the roads?
0: very close um, as you mentioned at the outset I'm an advisor to Google self-driving cars which is now their spin-off waymo they have a fleet of several hundred vehicles operating in Chandler Arizona which is near Phoenix and they have several hundred early adopter uh, customers who are riding in these vehicles now right now there's a, 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 a waymo personnel in the vehicle to, to be a backup in case something occurred but But they're getting real close, real close. But real close isn't good enough, Dan, because we drive three trillion miles a year as Americans. And so you need to be like ninety nine point nine 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 certain that you've captured all of the the driving challenges. But um, we're way out on that ninety nine point nine nine world right now trying to find those last few things and,
1: and getting them right. So from the legislative side, how close do you think we are? Uh, could you repeat that again, Dan? From, from the from the legislative side, how close do you think we well, are? Because you know, that's the, that that's yeah. seemingly a big question right now.
0: A- absolutely, the good news is so far, the states and the localities and the federal government have been, I would say, very um, proactive in the sense of realizing to get this perfected, you have to learn on public roads. You're not going to prove this out in the laboratory or sure. on the proving ground. You have to get out on public roads. And they found their way clear, working with the, the leading companies developing the technology to let us learn on public roads. So this is really a learning process, and the, the legislation and the regulations are continuing to progress. So I think as long as the industry stays open to sharing their experience and what they're learning and their data, and the government stay open to the huge societal benefits that will be realized when we get to the full potential of self-driving cars that that will will continue to be able to make progress.
1: And, and it's more right now the state and local level, I would think, you know, having these allowances to use this technology on the road more so than the federal, correct?
0: That's correct. And um, you know, California has allowed Waymo to do its development work in, in Mountain View. Um, Waymo's done development work in the state of Washington and Texas, and obviously in Arizona. And so the states, I think, have been uh, quite proactive. The real question is, can, can should we have different regulations from different states? I think the preference would be to have one um, national-based set of regulations so that we don't have these variations across states. After all, if if you live in Michigan and you're in a self-driving car and you go into Indiana, yeah. You want to make sure that you're legally operating in Indiana. And I believe all of the right discussions are going on. There's legislation that's been proposed called the AV Smart Act, or I'm sorry, AV Start Act that's being discussed in the Senate right now. And that's how our processes work. Get get a a starting point, have the dialogue, and hopefully Mm -hmm. it'll land in the right spot.
1: Lawrence Burns is the author of the book Autonomy, the quest to build the driverless car and how it will reshape the world. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter and we'll bring it up on the show, at bizradio132. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. And you talk about the, the savings that, that eventually we are going to see from the use of autonomous. Really, in what areas and, and by how much, do you think?
0: Well, the, the, there's a lot of different ways autonomous vehicles can, can be used to, to benefit society. Let me just spend a second. Um, we've had about a 130-year-old transportation system evolve over that, that century-plus century time frame. It's become safer and cleaner and more affordable, but the fact is, There's 1.3 million people dying on the world's roadways. That's epidemic in scale. We're over 90% dependent on oil. We've got the climate change issues. And there's a lot of hassles to owning and operating a car. And for the first time, we have a chance to do something about that. And when suddenly you can envision a car that doesn't need a driver, it's going to impact goods movement, um, the big over-the-road trucks or the local package delivery to your home or your apartment. It's going to impact how you get around every day. It's going to let younger people get around more. It's going to let older people get around more and handicapped people and people who can't afford a car or elect not to own one. So the benefits are tremendous. We see better experiences, you know, door-to-door travel where you don't spend your time traveling, getting out of the car, feeling better than when you got into it at lower cost for you in terms of your out-of-pocket and time cost and for society. So That's what's so exciting. I would say any vehicle that moves on the surface of the earth that has a driver could be uh, transformed by what we're talking
1: about. And one of the areas that that we've mentioned on this show uh, in the last year or so is the trucking industry. And we're seeing even that be potentially impacted by driverless and and how— you know, I mean, big, long, 53-foot tractor trailers that will be moving autonomously across the roads of the United States.
0: Oh, yeah, and when you really look at a, an over-the-road tractor um, and you ask yourself what parts are on that tractor because there's a driver on it, well, the windshield, the doors, the seats, the steering controls, the brakes, you begin to get the picture. In fact, the parts you can take off of that tractor will likely cost more than the parts you're going to add to make it autonomous. Today, an over-the-road truck driver makes about $0.64 cents a mile uh, wage and benefits. There's a shortage of drivers because it's a, it's a tedious job. It's one that takes people away from home, and um, there's uh, safety concerns as well. So here's a chance to not just become more efficient, and trucking is so important in an e-commerce world. Every e-commerce retailer is competing to get you your package within yeah. a day, And so now you have this huge productivity opportunity and safety opportunity with with over-the-road trucking, and it's going to be very significant impact. When you look
1: at, at the partnerships that are being developed, and you laid out uh, some of the ones that, that are ongoing right now, what does that say about the auto industry in general in terms of this technology, obviously, moving forward, but it almost feels like the auto industry knows that if they are not involved in this uh, with a partnership or some fashion, that they were going to be left out in the cold.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'd say one of the fascinating parts about uh, the book, uh, my book, Autonomy, is it, it, it tells that story. Um, after this DARPA Urban Challenge, the only company that really stepped up for um, public road use application of this was Google. Larry Page and Sergey Brin uh, challenged um, a small team of, of the participants in that DARPA challenge to come up with a vehicle that could go on public roads and proved the concept out. The auto industry basically was in denial. Dan, I would say yep. for five or six years, and we recreate that in, in autonomy. We tell the story of, you know, how Google got started into this area, and then how some of the engineers on Google's team reached out to the auto industry and essentially had the door slammed in their face, and then eventually the auto industry began to get it. 2014-15 time frame, and companies like GM and Ford and others have now moved into this space with their own driverless vehicle development programs. But think about what the auto industry has been. They sell the vehicle as a product, and the big opportunity here is to sell transportation as a service. It's an entirely different business model, and the auto industry is going to have to learn how to participate in that business as well as what they've done historically
1: what does this mean though moving forward for the auto industry because numbers of auto sales are are obviously a concern each and every year for the industry and we had seen obviously an uptick the last couple of years uh maybe starting to flatten out a little bit Uh, is the auto industry concerned about their actual sales because it feels like more and more millennials and maybe this will carry over to gen z don't feel like they need to have a car if this technology is there
0: uh, yes, I think they recognize that concern. And there's other concerns that they have to face just beyond the um, maybe ambivalence of the millennials. And I have two daughters who are millennials, and I would say you've characterized them properly. They would, they would give up their car way before they give up their, their cell phone, for sure. And, um, but also, when you're in the transportation service business, you want to keep your cost per mile as low as possible. That's what yeah. fleets do. And that suggests you want to do these vehicles to last 300,000 miles, which are like what taxi cabs last. Today's cars typically last about 150,000. So once you get that longer life, you need half as many. Plus, the real basis of competition is going to be in the riding experience. And I think the car is going to become more of a commodity. And so those are real challenges that the auto industry needs to address because a lot of their profitability comes from the options that they sell to you to differentiate your specific vehicle. So this is a pretty broad impact. It's products that have far fewer parts, fewer vehicles being needed, and then the basis of competition isn't going to be the chrome and the exterior experience and how the car accelerates in corners. It's going to be how well is the experience in picking me up and dropping me off and doing that safely and making me really feel good about myself while I'm riding around and and relaxing our social networking in our vehicle.
1: Some of the uh, conversation uh, in the last couple of months, and, and I think uh, it's something to talk about, has been the unfortunate accidents that we have seen as this technology is starting to develop out. That some people have said, you know, you have to have some degree of this because of you're, you're developing a new technology. But they, the, the full expectation is, and you kind of alluded to it before, that any of these issues will be worked out and, and we will have a very strong industry at some point in the near future.
0: Yes, um, that's what engineers do. Engineers take what's possible and they make it real. And the way you do that isn't in one step. It's done through cycles of learning and what i'm especially proud of in my waymo affiliation is waymo has been on public roads now for over nine million miles and they've had one at fault crash it's a two two mile per hour scraping of a bus yes there's been some tragic fatalities with an uber vehicle as well as a tesla vehicle and i would um i my fundamental belief is if you follow best practices And developing the technology on public roads, you dramatically reduce the risk of these kinds of incidences. I I can't say, Dan, with certainty that there won't be additional crashes. uh, But um, you compare that to 40,000 Americans a year dying. That's over 100 a day are dying on our roads today. And um, we've gone through similar challenges in developing vaccines. There's always some people who have a risk of an allergic reaction on a vaccine. But you got to get it out there, and you got to get through the learning cycles and prove it out because the public good is so dramatic.
1: So you believe that those numbers of, of, of road deaths that, uh, that we see each and every year have the chance to really come down significantly as this technology moves forward?
0: Yes, the traffic safety experts believe we'll eliminate more than 90% of the crashes, and that's because more than 90% of the crashes are due to human error. Um, I'll be frank, it breaks my heart every time I read about someone dying because a car got on the freeway going the wrong way. Right. Oh, come on, we, we even have the, the, the technology today to prevent that from happening. Um, you can't enter a rental car agency's parking lot going the wrong way without flattening your tires. Yeah. So society has got to wake up to the fact that a 90% reduction of 1.3 million roadway fatalities worldwide will save over a million lives a year. That means getting to this end objective one day sooner will save 3,000 lives. So that's the scale of what we're talking about and why it's so important to continue to progress on these development cycles. And, again, you won't be able to make the final progress without doing it on public roads.
1: Lawrence Burns is the author of the book, Autonomy, the Quest to Build the Driverless Car, and How It Will Reshape the World. Again, your comments welcome at 844 Wharton 844 844-942-7866. Or if you're not able to get your phone, send us a comment on Twitter, and we will bring it up, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You also... Mentioned about the fact that not only will this have an economic benefit, but this will have an environmental benefit as well, uh, with the potential of having these vehicles on the road uh, and reducing the carbon footprint as well.
0: Yeah, that was one of the real big ahas for for myself and and the team that I worked with. Um, after I left General Motors, I ran a program at Columbia University's Earth Institute called the Program for Sustainable Mobility. Right. And what we realized is that the path to electric vehicles and alternatives to oil for transportation energy, the path to getting there is through autonomous vehicles. And here's why. Once you have an autonomous vehicle and you don't have a driver in the vehicle, you can reposition vehicles when they're empty so that you can be in a transportation service and not have the added labor cost of repositioning cars to pick up other passengers. Once you can do that you want to reduce the cost per mile, and you realize that the electricity cost per mile is 5 to 10 cents less than gasoline cost. And if you have a vehicle that lasts 300,000 miles, that can be 15000 to $30,000 savings over the life of the vehicle, which weighs more than pays for the cost of the electric drive. Yeah. So autonomous electric vehicles, and then you tailor design them for the types of trips we make. 80% of the trips Americans make and cars are one and two person. Yeah. So, why do we need four to six seats? Why do we need three to 4,000 pound vehicles to do that? So, you put all that together, you get the efficiency of lowering the weight of the car, the efficiency of electric drive, you get the savings per mile of electric drive, and lo and behold, you're going to then re energize at a depot, not at a corner station, and suddenly you can introduce alternative fuels much more easily. So, this is a big breakthrough. My back of the envelope calculations suggest we could reduce our dependence on oil for transportation by 80%, which really is one of the keys to the climate change
1: solution. Which makes me wonder whether or not it, it will be a longer process than probably even you think, because of, as we know, especially in Washington, D.C., uh, the elements that that tend to influence our, our lawmakers uh, do have quite an influence there. And, and that's a lot of money that the, uh, that the oil industry, the gasoline industry, could be potentially looking at as losses.
0: Absolutely. So the jobs implications are Significant. There's four million people in the United States who make their living as drivers. There's a lot of people who make their living in the oil and gas industry. In fact, the two states whose GDP has grown the most in the last uh, since since the uh, recession are North Dakota and Texas, oil right. states. So the jobs implications are significant. But we've gone through these transitions in the nation's economy before. Um, When we went from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy, for example, a lot of farming jobs were displaced, but they were displaced and new jobs came along. And this transition, I believe, is inevitable. I believe it's sooner than most people are anticipating. But it's not going to be like a light switch where people can't prepare themselves and transition to the new economy jobs. That's one of the reasons we wrote Autonomy, yeah. was to make it available to a mainstream audience so they could read an engaging narrative with fascinating characters. And while they're reading this story, they begin to understand how the technology came to be and how it's going to impact their life. And then they can judge for themselves whether they need to be preparing themselves differently for the future. So this the book is very much aimed at mainstream readers.
1: Right. On the phone in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Tony is on the line. Tony, go ahead. Hi, yes. Um, i basically wanted to understand uh, what types of uh, jobs do you see the autonomous vehicle
0: uh, economy, if you will, uh, creating? Well, certainly, um, there's there's all of the jobs associated with developing the technology. So there'll be you know additional sensors on the vehicles. There'll be uh, software that will be created associated with that then there's some of the people think that you may even have concierge services on some of these autonomous vehicles since you're trying to provide a great ride to people so you may have a person on board that's not the driver but actually is caring for the um, the people who are riding in the vehicles so those are some of the opportunities I think there's going to be some very interesting infrastructure changes um, One of the advantages of of having a driverless over the road truck is the 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 load doesn't have to be as big. Part of the reason you have a big heavy load is you're trying to spread that cost of the driver over more over. or more pounds of shipment. So I think we're going to have opportunities that emerge and new, new forms of infrastructure beyond the communications infrastructure.
1: Tony, thanks very much for the call. One of the other things, I guess, would be the, the productivity that you could potentially gain back uh, by having uh, autonomous vehicles, by not having to have people focusing on driving. That, you know, obviously they would be focused on the road, but they could be uh, also working uh, while they're uh, driving as well. And, and it's saving them time in general.
0: That's a great observation, Dan. Transportation has always been a driver of productivity and, and nation's growth over long, over long time frames. Right. And so the interstate system, yes, people are concerned that the interstate system may have been the reason we have suburbs and less dense cities. But at the same time, it was a major enabler of U.S. competitiveness on, on goods movement. So the productivity opportunities here for moving people and goods around and the amount of time we're going to allow people to free up, in their daily lives. So if you, you, you take the over 200 million drivers that have their own car in the U.S., they spend about, about 90 minutes a day, yeah. and we're going to give them those 90 minutes back yeah. for, for productivity opportunities.
1: Lawrence, it's a, it's a fantastic look at the industry. Thank you very much for your time today, and all the best with the book.
0: Thanks, Dan. Great questions. I enjoyed the discussion.
1: Thank you. The book, again, is Autonomy, the Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape the World. Lawrence Burns, the author, uh, worked actually with uh, Christopher Shulgin uh, on that book. It is available in bookstores and online for your purchase now.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.